1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So if you look at some of the research that's been done out there anyway related to salt water and growing tomatoes, what usually comes out is a lower yield but a higher quality tomato. And so what we're looking at is looking at that quality benefit, but then also trying to maintain yield through some of the work that Mark's done.
2: This is Trevor Williams, and welcome to another episode of the Farm Traveler Podcast, the podcast for anyone curious about where their food comes from. Water is the most precious resource we have on the planet, with about 98% of that being salt water. The only real downfall with that is that we can't exactly use it to grow crops, or can we? Today, our guest is Ryan Lafers of Red Sea Farms located in Saudi Arabia. Red Sea Farms has developed a hydroponic method of growing tomatoes using saltwater. Not only could this be a huge step forward in helping fight global food security, it can also be a great example of the future of sustainable agriculture. In our interview, Ryan will explain the research behind saltwater tomatoes, what the agriculture industry is like in Saudi Arabia, and how his upbringing in South Dakota helped prepare him for his career. This is episode 44 with Ryan Lafers of Red Sea Farms. All right, well, Ryan Lafers, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being on. So we learned about you through um, Henry Gordon Smith of, Agri- of Agritexture. You are the co-founder and CEO of Red Sea Farms in Saudi Arabia, which is really neat. So tell us about kind of your background and how you got started with Red Sea Farms.
1: Yeah, sure. So I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. So agriculture is uh, in my blood. I mean, I remember getting kicked out the back door by my mom during the summers to go outside and play in the dirt. Uh, yeah, you know, just really loved agriculture from a young age. Um, so I came over here to Saudi Arabia about seven years ago. And really one of my main motivations for coming out here was to work on this big issue around um, well, feeding the world and what, what better place to do it than in a place where it's just really challenging to grow food. Uh, so I came out here originally to do research with King Abdullah University of Science and Technology. Um, so doing research around agriculture and growing food with less water in a harsh environment And from there, I met my co-founder of Red Sea Farms, Professor Mark Tester, world-renowned plant scientist and great guy. Um, And so then we sort of combined his plant science skills, my engineering background to form Red Sea Farms. And uh, Red Sea Farms were focused on trying to use salt water uh, and that as an abundant natural resource. In agriculture, to to grow food and to try and substitute some of the vast, vast amounts of fresh water that we're using right now as a planet to grow food.
2: Gotcha. Super neat. Yeah. I love hydroponics and aquaponics and the whole future of that industry. And when I heard that you guys are doing it with salt water, I was super intrigued. So, how did you guys come up with that whole system to where you can actually use salt water to grow plants without hurting the plants because of all the salinity in the water? Yeah, that's a great
1: question. So uh, when we talk about water use, you know, in, people always instinctively go to the water for irrigation. And that's absolutely the right place to, grow, to go if you're growing outdoors. But if you're growing indoors, like in a greenhouse or you know, even a vertical farming system, uh, a lot of cooling systems around the world use fresh water actually for cooling. And so in a in a hot, dry desert environment, as much as 80 to 90 percent of that water use is actually for cooling and not necessarily for irrigation, especially if you're using a system like, you know, hydroponics or aquaponics, which are water efficient anyway. So what we do is we use salt water and uh, liquid desiccants, which are used for humidity control in the cooling system to substitute that big freshwater use uh, for cooling. So that gives us a big plus right away. If you think about that 80 to 90% just uh, you know, being erased from the freshwater budget. And then if you look at the irrigation system, so what we've done, and this is primarily my co-founder's work, um, Mark on his side, is he's worked with plant salinity tolerance for you know a number of years. So he has work around increasing the salinity tolerance of plants uh, and also just selecting plants that are naturally salinity tolerant. And so those are the, the crops that we're looking at growing in those, those hydroponic systems or aquaponics. Um, so that's how it sort of all fits together and then you end up with you know, a big
2: freshwater savings. Okay, gotcha, that's really neat. What, what are some example plants that are very adaptive to saltwater environments?
1: what's interesting is that tomatoes actually have uh, natural salinity tolerance. So tomatoes, and I should say wild relatives of tomatoes that we currently cultivate, uh, especially have a lot of salinity tolerance. So, you know, again, this is primarily Mark's work, but he's looked at some uh, varieties of wild tomatoes from South America that can grow even on up to full seawater. Um, now that doesn't mean that they produce a tomato that's commercially viable, But it does mean that they produce tomatoes. And so, you know, by doing things like um, grafting and then selection of already, you know, commercial cultivars that might have some salinity tolerance and then breeding, uh, we're able to have some commercial cultivars that can tolerate certain levels of salinity and still produce a crop. That you know has a good yield and actually a higher quality so if you look at some of the research that's been done out there anyway related to salt water and growing tomatoes what usually comes out is a lower yield but a higher quality tomato and so what we're looking at is looking at that quality benefit but then also trying to maintain yield through some of the work that mark's done
2: Weird question, have you noticed that any plants that ha- kind of go through the systems, do they have like a salty taste to them at all or no?
1: Well, you know, everyone <laughs> asks that, and that's a, that's a natural question. Um, the answer is no. So
2: it, let me
1: rephrase that. For the tomatoes, the answer is no. Now we have some other plants that are, uh, let's say more in line with like a salad type crop. So for example, um, salicornia, which is also commonly called sea asparagus, If you grow that with salt water you you eat the plant itself you don't eat the fruit and yeah that definitely has a salty taste but with tomatoes where it's a fruiting crop you you don't notice a salty taste in the fruit
2: we were talking with another podcast they were talking about growing plants in space and how they're growing things with um more of an edible biomass so it seems like plants like that like lettuces and stuff that you eat more of the plant would kind of have the saltier taste well that's very interesting okay definitely So what's the overall, what's the big goal? Like, How do you guys plan to kind of grow this in the future to kind of broadcast it to many different um, countries? What's the overall goal there?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the goal here is to contribute to world food security (laughs) and hopefully be economically viable in the process. But we're starting here in Saudi Arabia. So we've got some, we actually have 750 square meters. So, you know, that's around, let's convert that to feet around 8,000 square feet of greenhouse area at the moment that we are growing tomatoes in. Um, But then we have plans over the next uh, year or two to, to scale that up a lot, and to start growing more and more commercial scale, and then to start extending into other regions. So both here within the Middle East and North Africa, but also, you know, the US, Mexico, Australia, you know, think anywhere where there's water shortage and abundance of um, salt water. So, freshwater shortage, abundance of salt water, those would be our target
2: areas to grow. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, it's super interesting. I haven't talked to anybody in Saudi Arabia yet for the podcast. So, what's the agriculture industry like over there? Like, what are, what are some main crops? What are some major diet trends over there? What's that like?
1: Oh yeah, sure. So the Saudi Arabian agriculture scene is entirely irrigated <laughs> as you can imagine in a in a country that's um, desert. We, I guess I should take that back there is a little bit of agriculture in the far south where it's rain fed but very minor and that's in the mountains there. So, um, so as it relates to open field agriculture there's a lot of center pivots, um, olive trees, Um, there's a bit of like citrus in the north so you know large-scale farms in general as far as indoor agriculture goes it's a growing sector and actually the government is really trying to support now a lot of controlled environment agriculture um, for growing things like vegetables and fruits so I think the country's at a transition stage now really between water intensive open field agriculture and more let's say um, uh, water use efficient indoor agriculture for specific high value crops like fruits and vegetables
2: gotcha i've seen that you guys have kind of entered in several entrepreneurial um contests in saudi arabia how did those go
1: Yeah, so the most recent contest, it was actually a global competition. It's called the Entrepreneurship World Cup. Um, we, we ended up competing at the national level and being one of six winners at the Saudi Arabian national level. But then we went to the international level, uh, which the finals just happened to also be held in Saudi Arabia. So in that competition, which uh, had 100 teams from around the world that were pre-selected from a pool of... I think it was like a hundred thousand we ended up getting third overall and that was that was a big honor we were really thankful to participate in that Uh, there was a lot of great press we met a lot of great people as a result of that so it was a really great and positive experience that we're really thankful to have been a part of
2: okay that's really neat yeah I saw that on your on your website and I was like oh that's a super cool thing to be a part of um so you have a background as an agriculture engineer. So what kind of inspired you to kind of go down that, that career? Because my wife is an engineer and she works um, in diving over here in the U.S. and she loves it. And I know a lot of really cool engineers, but I haven't really talked to an agriculture engineer yet. So what kind of inspired you to go down that route and what's that experience been?
1: Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, this was way back in high school when I was trying to you know pick out, okay, what major am I going to study? <laughs> And I looked at, you know, different, different opportunities. Of course, engineering was interesting to me because I, I liked physics and math. Um, but then I also had this really strong love for agriculture. And so agricultural engineering was a nice mesh between the two because I could really start to apply some of my like skills and interests in like, you know, science and math, but then also do it in an agricultural setting. So, yeah, I did a bachelor and master's actually at South Dakota State University, Um, had a great experience there, got a great background. Um, Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing about it, I remember as a kid, like it would rain and and, uh, there would be these puddles in the driveway and I would just walk around with a hoe, like (laughs) digging little channels to drain the puddles, which, you know, it's kind of a quirky thing to do, but I... In a way, I feel like that's that's almost what I'm doing now, um, to a much larger extent. But you know, uh, applying some sort of <laughs> scientific principles to try to get the water to go where I want it to go, or to do what I want it to do.
2: Absolutely, no, that's really cool. It sounds like you had like a really cool experiment going on there. That's neat. Um, <laughs> Yeah. so I mean, did you find that you had a lot of like misconceptions when you were doing that degree? Because I feel like it, outside of agriculture, people would be like, oh, wait, what's an agricultural engineer going to do? Like, did you find a lot of misconceptions with that career field that people removed from agriculture really kind of wouldn't understand at, at face value?
1: Yeah. Well, and I think the, I think those were fair uh, misunderstandings because the. The, the truth is that agriculture engineers do a bit of everything. So I'm more on like, let's say the environmental side of agricultural engineering. I deal with water, um, soil, you know, um, the environmental side, but there's agricultural engineers who do things like designing tractors. And that's what most people would assume that I do as an agricultural engineer. And that's fine. So there's those that are on the mechanical side. And then you have people that are on the structural side, uh, designing agricultural structures, you know, like big, big barns and, and greenhouses, and I'm doing some of the greenhouse side as well, so a bit on the structural side. Uh, and then you have sort of the food science side, where you have agricultural engineers who are working on things like packaging, and um, you know, the next greatest cheese mix, for example. Uh, so agricultural engineers, <laughs> as a group, we're very, very diverse. So I think that that sort of um, question from those who are outside the discipline is definitely warranted because there's so much diversity within the agricultural engineering community.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Those are very good viewpoints you kind of talk about. Some people removed might think you just do, like you are saying, like design barns or greenhouses or tractors. but there's a lot more yeah. into it, like food science and all that good yeah, stuff. Yeah. So you guys offer also um, consulting services about kind of how companies can best grow um, ag products with saltwater. So what are some of the best advice that you kind of give your consumers without kind of giving the, the secret away? What's some really good consulting advice that y'all give for doing the whole saltwater experience?
1: <laughs> um, you know, it's really site specific, uh, but what we do is we, we work with, you know, clients on what they have and so we look at what's their water source you know what specific ions are in that you know is it sodium dominated is it calcium dominated you know what what is actually causing the salinity in the water source and then we look at the soil as well so is it a sandy soil is it a clay soil Um, and then what do they want to grow is it a landscape type operation where you know they're just trying to water some grass or is it, uh, you know, a greenhouse? Are they trying to grow fodder? Like, what are their goals? And then based on all those things, uh, you know, we try to make a recommendation and also try to just be honest with them. Like, you know, there are some sites where it just doesn't make sense, um, where it's just not a good place to grow something. But if it is a site that's marginal, we try to give best recommendations for what what's the smartest thing to do with the resources that
2: they have at that site. Gotcha, gotcha, all very good advice. Um, Random question and I just thought about it. I know there is a spot, I think in the northern tip of France on the coast where they have um, miles and miles of greenhouses and I saw some TV show where you can get a satellite and zoom in and it just looks like there's snow on the ground while you zoom in a little bit farther and there's nothing but greenhouses. Have you been to that area in France to kind of look at what they're doing?
1: I have not been to that area in France. I have been to Southern Spain. So if you zoom in around like Almeria in Spain, you'll find the same thing. And it's, it's amazing. You go there and it's just it's just greenhouse after
2: greenhouse. Oh, wow. That's super neat. Yeah, I love greenhouses. I mean, have you ever been to Disney World? Random question? Uh, in California, yes. Okay. Well, I'm here in Florida. And so we go down to Orlando all the time. And my favorite right. ride is... Um, the land where they take you through a Disney greenhouse. And it is my favorite thing to do at Disney. They have all these hydroponic and aquaponic systems set up. We even did like the behind the scenes tour where we we saw like aeroponics and um, a whole bunch of different stuff going on. So if you're ever in Orlando, you might have to give that one a try. It's really cool. Yes. That's a great place. Yeah. It's really fun. Um, So something I like to ask all the, all the guests, are their thoughts on the farmer consumer relationship? So for you, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you, in Saudi Arabia, to kind of get like an international feel, in Saudi Arabia specifically, what, what is the farmer-consumer relationship like? Like, are people more interested in where their food comes from now? Has it always been like that? Are they not interested? So what's that relationship right now?
1: Um, I would say, I would say it's mirroring, it mirrors the global trend. So I would say that people are more and more caring about where their food comes from and how it's grown. Uh, So we're seeing uh, an emergence of uh, local farming operations that are like direct to consumer, you know, sort of like know your farmer, know your food. Uh, That's a trend that's emerging here, sort of just like it is globally. Um, So yeah, and then you have other consumers who are still just very price sensitive and whatever is the lowest price, that's what they buy. So I would say that segment though is shrinking and there's a there's a growing segment that's really concerned about uh, quality and also uh, just knowing where the food comes from from a sustainability standpoint from a um, you know supporting the local economy standpoint, really all of it
2: okay that's really neat that's really that's a cool little international perspective uh, What do you see as the future of agriculture? do you see kind of a more sustainable industry with hydroponics, row crops, irrigation kind of working in harmony. What what do you see as the big, big picture that we kind of need to answer this whole climate change issue being more sustainable? What's your answer there?
1: Ah, that's a very big question. So I see it as a mix. So I don't think that there is any one silver bullet, uh, but I do think that as a collective group. Of farmers and scientists and engineers and just you know people living on the planet like there's this sort of like mix of solutions and technologies that we can use together to create a more sustainable long-term agriculture Um, so you know it certainly has to be applied in row crop and you know open field irrigated agriculture but there's going to be just more and more controlled environment agriculture For the simple reason of like, you know, a a growing population, and you can grow more per square foot or per square meter in a controlled environment setting, and you can have control over the quality just much more than you would outside. So I think it's, you know, I mean, I think it's a mixed bag of solutions um, that we can apply together as a planet to really grow food in a sustainable way
2: absolutely very good very good viewpoints yeah i think it's going to be a kind of a mixed bag where every kind of every industry kind of improves we have hydroponics regular row crops i think those are always going to be around and just kind of doing a better job of kind of taking care of the environment and producing as much food as humanly possible Yeah. Um, well ryan this has been really cool man learning about red sea farms i was super excited to talk with you guys and learned a great deal um if people want to follow you guys, you're on. Uh, where can they find you on Instagram? What's your website? Where can people go to kind of follow and see what Red Sea Farms is up to?
1: Yeah, so I mean, we do have a website. It's just www.redseafarms.com. We're also on Instagram. Uh, we're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter. So you can follow us there. Um, yeah, and that's the best way to to stay in touch.
2: Perfect. Well, we will absolutely be staying in touch. I follow you guys on Instagram and I check out your website every now and then. So it's really cool, really cool stuff. Well, well, Ryan, thanks for educating us on how you can actually grow plants with salt water. Super cool, really cool little niche you guys have created. Um, We wish you the best of luck and thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to our episode today with Ryan Lafers of Red Sea Farms. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Just look up Farm Traveler. We're also creating additional content on our YouTube channel. If you want to see more about what you can do to learn where your food is being made, how it's made, and the many people that bring you the safest, most abundant food supply in the world, we're going to bring you some videos on what you can do to kind of bridge your gap between the farmers and the consumers. So check us out. You know, just go to YouTube and look up Farm Traveler. And we will also leave a link in the description for that. So check us out. And as always, thanks for listening. Share with your friends. And we'll see you in the next episode.